Well, let's turn tonight to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read a few verses. Ephesians chapter 2. Not too hard to find, of course. New Testament. Ephesians 2. We'll read from verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, <coughs> fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We'll end the reading there at verse 10 and we pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 and my theme this evening is considering the Reformation principle of sola gratis. Now yesterday... The Reverend Thomas Murray as moderator of Presbytery and myself as minister of this congregation laid two foundation stones and we did so in the name of the Lord. These foundation stones, as I was working on them on Friday, got me thinking again of foundational truths that primarily relate to the gospel. Given that this is the month of October, I felt that a short mini-series on the great five foundational truths rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation would be a good theme to study and think about. Now last week we looked at the subject of Scripture alone. We considered sola scriptura. The Bible only is the religion of Protestantism. This is the only way of knowing truth from error. Of course, it doesn't matter what the Free Presbyterian Church says, or what the Pope of Rome says, or what the Church Councils have said, or even the Westminster Confession of Faith for that matter. Even though I know and trust it is a sound and solid theological creed, it matters supremely what the Bible says on every subject. Now, the Bible alone is the sole arbiter in all matters to do with our belief and our behavior. 
Of course, this is something that has been lost today in the great fog of relativism. How can we know what is right and wrong? How do we know that same-sex marriage is wrong? How do we know that two people living together, not married, are living in sin? How do we know that murder and theft and adultery and being a false witness is wrong? How do we judge? Of course, the answer is we are judged by the Scriptures. The Bible alone is the sole standard of the true Protestant church. In fact, the Protestant church is the only kind of a true church that there is. And and that's not a a statement of bigotry. That's not about being sectarian. That is a theological fact and a grand truth. You see, one of the great truths to be re-emphasized that re-emerged from the days of the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Now, I preached one sermon in that. Other men, like Dr. Alan Kearns, uh, he could preach a whole series of messages just on the one uh, sola, sola scriptura, and he has. They're on the website of the sermon audio. You can listen to them if you can. And what I preached last Lord's Day was not meant to be exhaustive. In fact, I felt and I said I was only really scratching the surface. Now, the second of the five solas uh, preached to summarize the Protestant reformers' basic belief was sola gratia. (coughs) The words sola gratia are Latin words. Solia means only or alone. Gratius has to do with grace. So hence the phrase, uh, grace alone. Now, what does the term mean? What way was it understood in Reformation times? Why is it most important today? Why is it most misunderstood today within the um, Christian church? We could even ask the question, where did the term ever come from? And these are questions that I'm going to try and answer tonight. I want us to think of three things as we think of our text. Think of the words, for by grace are ye saved. Now, what is grace? You see, we need to define our terms, young people. What does the word mean? You see, the word can mean different things to different people. You hear the word grace mentioned, you could think of a girl's name. I know a girl in school called Grace. That's what you could think about. Or you could think about a blessing at the mealtime. Would you say Grace, son? Or it could also mean a, a, a grace period to pay a particular fine or a particular interest or a particular debt. So we're not thinking tonight of a girl's name or even the blessing at the mealtime or a grace period to pay a fine or a debt. We're thinking of the word grace in a theological and biblical sense. And I believe it's important to understand the meaning of the word. Why? Because it's one of the great foundational principles of the gospel. It regards how a sinner can be saved. How a sinner can be legally declared righteous before a holy God. Now, now what does it mean? The Protestant reformers 
heralded this message that when it comes to the salvation of the sinner, any sinner, every sinner, they heralded forth this message that it's grace at the start, it's grace to the end, it's grace in the middle, it's grace without feel, grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace that allows no boasting, grace that precludes all glorying except in the Lord himself. You see, in order to understand the gospel, we need to understand grace. Now, now what is it? Let me tell you that it's been described as undeserved kindness and favour. And it means that, okay? It's been described as getting everything for nothing to those who deserve nothing. And it means that. It's been described in the form of an acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense, and that's good. And I'm not knocking that. But I want to tell you this evening that that acrostic, even in itself, is not rich enough. It's not fulsome enough to describe grace. You see, grace is more than undeserved kindness and favour. Grace is more than getting everything for nothing to those who deserve nothing. Grace is more than God's riches at Christ's expense. Professor John Murray has explained the absolute necessity and depth of God's grace. And this is what he said. We cannot think of sinners as merely undeserving. They are ill-deserving. The grace of God to sinners is therefore not simply unmerited favour. It's favour shown to the ill-deserving, indeed to the hell-deserving. Literally, the grace of God is the unmerited, undeserved favour shown to hell-deserving sinners. Now, now, that's the proper definition of grace. So when, when we sing about grace, when we speak about grace, that's what we mean. That's what the reformers meant. Unmerited favour, undeserved favour, shown to hell-deserving sinners. Sinners who have broken God's law. Sinners who don't deserve salvation. Sinners who deserve the opposite. Because the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. The sentence of death has come upon all men because of sin. Remember, we sinned in Adam and fell in him. The sinner does nothing to deserve God's salvation. You and I, apart from the grace of God and salvation, what are we? We're hell-deserving sinners. On account of our sin. We're born sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sinners tonight and carried off. They shake their fist in the face of God. They, they, they argue with God. You will not tell me what to do. You will not tell me how to live. The, the mindset is like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And these sinners don't realise. They don't recognize their condition. Remember the psalmist, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful, and above all things desperately wicked. Uh, who can know it? Was it Ezekiel that preached? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And only as we're made to understand what sin is, 
and made to understand its terrible consequences, only then do we begin to understand the greatness and the wonder of God's free grace. See, we live in a day when there's a shallow view of sin. Because there's a shallow view of sin, we have a shallow view of grace. It's not properly understood. And I've heard so many evangelicals, in fact, it, it irritates me, it gets under my skin by defining grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's good. But that's not the full and proper definition. That's not the, what the reformers understood by way of defining grace. Remember, it's unmerited, undeserving favor shown to hell-deserving sinners. I admit tonight that it's very difficult for us human beings to grasp and understand the depth of God's free grace. You see, most of us have the notion, I've got to pay for what I've, I, I've been given. I've got to work for what I have. We pay for our food, we, we pay our car tax, we pay our car insurance, we pay for our petrol. And we have this mindset about paying for things, about doing things. If I don't work, I, I won't get paid and therefore I won't eat and provide for my family. But you know, when it comes to God's salvation, let's remember what Jonah preached. Jonah 2 and 9, salvation is of the Lord. You see, it starts with the God of grace. And it ends with the God of grace. And it's a foundational truth. And the key word is sola. That's why that word is so important. It means alone. By grace alone. And we were singing there, only a sinner saved by grace. And that was where the reformers stood. If we were to ask a Protestant in those days in the 15th century, how were you saved? Here's the answer. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And it's important that we understand the term. So it's important tonight you understand the definition of grace. God's unmerited favor, I'm repeating it again, shown to the ill-deserving, indeed to the hell-deserving. Let me move on very quickly. And secondly, I want you to think with me of the distortion of grace. You see, once you understand the terms and once you take into your mind well okay this is how the reformers understood the word this is what they meant when they used the word grace we've got to recognize today that very sadly there's a pop popular misunderstanding even within the the, the the protestant evangelical church it goes like this now, now please listen carefully in the Protestant church, how are you saved? We're saved by grace. What does the Roman Catholic Church teach? We're saved by good works. Now, I want to tell you something. That's really not strictly true. And if a Roman Catholic theologian was here, he would say, 
the Reverend McLaughlin's right. If we were in debate with a Roman Catholic theologian, for anyone to stand in a podium and say that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that we're saved by good works, he, he would rubbish that. Because he would declare this. Now listen to me carefully. He would pronounce that salvation is by God showing us favour that we don't deserve. He would agree, of course, that salvation is by God's grace, that God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary by grace or through grace. He would maintain that the sinner can't be in heaven except by God's grace. He would maintain that the good works the sinner does must be by God's grace. And you see, what we have to do is what the reformers did. We have to then ask the Roman Catholic theologian or ask the Roman Catholic priest, how do you receive grace? Who dispenses it? And we, we would say to him, well, you need to be honest now. We're, we're waiting your reply. And this is what he would say. And this is where the distortion of grace is coming into the evangelical church. That God has given the church grace. And it's the church that dispenses the grace through the sacraments. And as the adherent receives the sacraments, they get sanctifying, saving grace. Well, I want to tell you, that's not the gospel. Because God has not given the church grace. God has given Christ the grace. You see, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you have to do what the church says to get the grace. The church child, when it's born, has to be baptized into the church. The child then has to grow up adhering to the ritualism of the church. Performing the penance, going to the confessional, practicing the mass, reciting the rosary, paying money for the church services, and adhering to all seven sacraments within the Roman Catholic system. And I want to say tonight, that's a distortion of grace. That's not grace at all. That's showing the subtlety of the Church of Rome in all its guile. Because if it's dependent on the church, do what the church says, perform the church's rituals and ceremonies, then it is not grace at all. Look at our text. For by grace he is saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Imagine tonight, if we use a little illustration, that Sarah Jane here has gone down to the pound shop. And the pound shop's a very good place to buy sweets, young people. You can get a good bag of sweets for a pound. But let's say she wants to buy a bag of sweets, okay? And um, she looks in her wee purse and she only has one penny. And she stands there looking at the bag of sweets and she only has one penny. And somebody comes and says, look, there's 99 pence. And all you've got to do is add the penny to the 99 and you've got a pound. And you can buy the bag of sweets. So we could ask Sarah Jean then later, well, how much did you contribute to the bag of sweets? And she would say a penny. 
And the reality is because she has contributed something to the bag of sweets, the bag of sweets in its entirety was not a gift that was given and bought for her freely. She would have contributed something, even though it was only a penny. It was a contribution. And you see, the Lord Jesus didn't pay your debt of sin and mine that we owe to the broken law, to God, 99%. And then asked us to contribute but 1%. Remember he said in John 19 and 30, it is finished. Hebrews 10 and 14 says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And you see, once you add anything to grace, it is no longer grace. You make grace of none effect. I'm sad to say tonight that the Church of Rome and its dogma and doctrines hasn't changed. The Roman Catholic priest and theologian talks of grace. They write about grace. They, 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 they'll argue about grace. They'll say the sinner can't be in heaven except by God's grace. But when we ask them, how is it received? Then the answer has to be, God has given the church grace. And he hasn't. He's given the grace to Christ. Church of Rome, of course, doesn't believe in grace alone. And if it's not grace alone, it is not grace. Remember what the reformers in their definition? Grace at the start. Grace in the middle. Grace at the end of salvation. God reaching down in grace to the ill-deserving and the hell-deserving. To those who are brought to the place where they say, I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing to recommend myself to God. What about human works? People ask. An appeal is made that human works and human actions must be involved before salvation can occur. And that it is grace that saves because it is God who works in us. Those human works. And he's the ultimate source and power for these works. But the Bible again makes it clear. No works of merit on our part play any role whatsoever in salvation. The Church of Rome confuses the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. Remember what Paul was able to say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. He made a tremendous statement, therefore being justified by faith. Past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being legally declared righteous, we have got peace with God. With the knowledge of sins forgiven. Human works of course cannot be uh, mixed in. And remember Paul says again in Romans uh, chapter 11. And in the um, verse 6 he said this. In Romans 11 and 6. And if by grace. Then it is no more works. Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works. Then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. So, I want you to think not only the definition, but the distortion of the grace. How do we receive it? Who dispenses the grace? I want to tell you, it's not the church. It is Christ. Now, one final thing, and we're really only getting to the heart of the message. 
as Alan Kearns, if he was here, say, well, that's only the introduction, but, but I'd be brief. I want you to think thirdly of the Declaration of Grace. Go back to our text. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The word saved is a lovely Bible word. For by grace are you saved. Saved from what? Remember, we're talking in a biblical theological sense. You're not saved from a burning building. Although the building was on fire, you, you, you would need to be rescued from it. Or, or, or saved from drowning in the swimming pool or the sea. So saved from what? And the answer, of course, is we're saved from sin's penalty. We're saved from sin's power. We're saved from sin's pleasure. We're, we're saved one day from the very presence of sin. Remember what Paul says in the context, and you have they quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 5, look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, it quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Notice the connection here. The word quickened means being made alive. One day we were made alive by the Spirit of God to the reality and the existence of God. Made alive to the reality and existence of our sin. We, we knew about our sinnership. Made alive that we had a soul. And we needed salvation. And that salvation was in Christ alone. You see, here's what we once were. We were sinners dead in trespasses and sins. A dead person can do nothing to make himself alive, can they? Isn't that true physically? If a person's dead physically, can they resurrect themselves? If a person's dead in trespasses and sins, can they spiritually make themselves alive? And the answer, of course, is a resounding no. The Apostle Paul, he understood this. Writings in Romans, again, teaching the truths of the gospel. He said, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. And there's none that doeth good. No, not one. And you think of Jairus' daughter, age 12. You think of the widow of Nain's son who just died and were carrying the coffin out to the burying place. You think of Lazarus who was dead four days. They had one thing in common. Do you know what it was? They were all dead. Oh, oh yes, there was a different time between them when they had died. But they were all dead and they needed life. They needed a spiritual resurrection. And a person who's dead and trespasses in sin, that's what he needs. And that's what Paul means when he says, and when we were dead in sins, even when we were dead in sins, it quickened us together with Christ. Let's understand something tonight about the necessity of God's salvation, the need of grace. It's because of the total depravity of the sinner. Individuals today don't understand the depravity or condition of their own human heart. As Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. I think again of the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7. Remember what he said there? Uh, about the human heart in Mark uh, chapter 7. He said this, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile 
the man. And tied into this doctrine of the total depravity of the sinner is the total inability of the sinner. He is spiritually dead. He needs a spiritual resurrection. He needs an infusion of life. You see, I I say that to tell you this. We live in days of religious compromise, days of spiritual apostasy, even in evangelical circles. There'll be talk that Christ is the Son of God, that he's born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he died an atoning death, that they believe in his bodily resurrection. But they don't really want to make people feel uncomfortable sitting in the pew or in the seat. And they take it upon themselves to to pride themselves in saying this, we're not going to preach about your sin or the state and condition of the human heart. We're not going to call you for repentance. We're not going to say you've got to be sorry enough to quit your sin in order to be saved. We're certainly not going to speak about that awful place called hell. We're not comfortable with that language. We, We want you to be happy. We want you to take Jesus as a friend. We we want you to have Jesus as your friend so you can overcome your problems and your pressures of life. And and we believe that Jesus is the best friend of all. Uh, And we believe that he helps us to overcome our problems and pressures of life. But before he can be your friend, he needs to be your saviour. There's a saviour from all sin, the hymn writer says, if you'll only let him in. And I want to say tonight, individuals need to understand their condition first. That they're, they're, they're spiritually dead. That they're spiritually lost. And once to understand the blackness and depth of our sinful heart and see our sin, then we'll sense a need of a saviour. Here's why we need God's grace. We're declared to be dead in trespasses and sins. Didn't the Apostle Paul often give us testimony? He often told us how he was saved. Listen to this. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. It's not tremendous. The grace of God came upon me. Remember, he was on his way to persecute and imprison the people of God. He wanted to beat them into submission. And then he says, in the Damascus Road, what happened? The grace of God came upon me. The grace of God shook me to the core. The the, the grace of God brought me in a way that it brought me to repentance and faith in Christ. And later on, he could say in Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. How can you receive the grace of God? Not by baptism. I want to tell you, grace is not bestowed in baptism tonight. Baptism doesn't bring sanctifying grace for the first time to the infant. Do you know tonight in Great Ormond Street Hospital, for example, there is a cupboard. If a child is ill and uh, the death of that child is imminent, that the, the nurse can go and get some holy water and get some sacred oil. And she could stand over that child, even if she's not a, a believer. And she could pronounce a baptismal formula for that child. And, and add the oil. And baptize that child in the name of the church. See, Roman Catholic theology says this. That the infant, unless regenerated unto God through grace of baptism, that child, if it dies, go into eternal misery 
Years ago, they talked about the unbaptized child going into limbo or being lost. Years ago, graveyards and Roman um, Catholic chapels caused great division because there was unbaptized people and unbaptized children. And that was accepted by the masses years ago. Wouldn't be accepted now. We could have to ask tonight. Paul says on the Damascus road, the grace of God came upon me. And that God has not given the church of Rome the power to bestow grace through baptism or any of the other sacraments. Grace doesn't come via the Mass. It doesn't come via Mary. Even though they call her the mother of all grace and say to her, Hail Mary, full of grace. Grace doesn't come through Mary. Let me finish with this. How does grace come? Go back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Yes, 24 rather. And it says this. Being justified freely by his grace. Emphasis on the word freely. Do you know what it means? Without a cause. Without baptism. Without Mary. Without the mass. It's freely bestowed. And God bestows it and dispenses it by Christ. Don't rely on the church. It's Christ that saves. Salvation is not by human merit or your performance. You're an undeserving, hell-deserving sinner. And you need the God of all grace to come to you. Remember this little formula I've given it to you before. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. He's all you need. But Jesus plus something, the one pay contribution, you end up with nothing. Could you imagine this scenario? A woman going, or, or a man going to the church every day, lights candles, he offers prayers, he goes through a lifetime of ritual and ceremony. And at the end of that life dies as he or she lives. And, and we have to say that that individual will not be in heaven. And then think of the opposite. A big rascal. A thief. A murderer. And at the end of his days and his dying moment he repents. And he puts his trust in Christ. And like the dying thief we say to that man today shall thou be with me in paradise. And you see, when people hear this type of preaching, they say, but that's unfair. And we understand human nature saying it's unfair. But I want to tell you, let's remember we deserve nothing. The woman who went through the ritual and the ceremony all her life deserved nothing from God. The dying thief deserved nothing from God. But because he repented and recognized he was a sinner and received Christ, he was assured of heaven and home as if he was in it. Have you that assurance tonight? Have you received grace? Can you sing only a sinner saved by grace? May the Lord take these few stumbling, stammering words and bless them to us.